Welcome to this week's podcast, in which we'll be hearing from Gary Kasparov and Stephen Fry, Margaret Bowden, Beth Singler, Marcus de Sotoy and Ian McEwen, Nigel Shadbolt and James Scott about neural networks, machine learning, pattern recognition and artificial intelligence and the way in which both fiction and scientific and technological fact are moving towards technological singularity, the hypothetical point in time where technological growth becomes uncontrollable and irreversible, resulting in unforeseeable changes to human civilization. For a very simple definition of artificial intelligence, let's hear first from the great doyen of artificial intelligence scholarship, Professor of Cognitive Science at the University of Sussex, Margaret Bowden. Could you define what we mean by artificial intelligence? Uh, well, yes, I think that is a relatively straightforward question. Artificial intelligence is the attempt to get computers to do the sorts of things that human minds can do, and animal minds for that matter, but not necessarily by using the same sorts of processes. So anything that we do, talking, remembering, problem solving, um, arguing and having feelings of jealousy and loyalty and things like that, which might come up later, in principle is something which AI ought to be able to simulate. Nigel Shadbolt is Professor of Computer Science at the University of Oxford, co-founder of the Open Data Institute with Tim Berners-Lee, and the author of The Digital Ape, How to Live in Peace with Smart Machines. Here he is explaining how neural networks work. One of the most exciting areas of computer science is artificial intelligence. It's much in the news at the moment. People are excited about understanding our own intelligence by building computer models. And, of course, we hear every day of more extraordinary achievements from machines that build, beat the world's best Go players to AI systems that can drive our cars or recognise our faces. And one of the most important uh, methods and techniques in artificial intelligence at the moment is a type of machine learning known as neural networks. Neural networks are inspired, they take their name from, the way in which human nervous systems are connected, or animal nervous systems in fact, sets of neurons or processing units that are connected synaptically. They have connections between these large numbers of neurons and cells, brain cells. Well, that model has been used in computing as a way of processing information. Imagine a layer, a set, or an array of these neurons. Imagine another layer connected to those neurons. So two sheets of neurons connected via links. The whole point of a neural network is to work out how to adjust and change link strengths between neurons. We think that's how information processing occurs in the brain, and we're able to do a whole range of things with these architectures, with this method, by having layer on layer of neurons connected together. For example, we can recognise faces, we can recognise images that are collected from the web, images that are labelled dogs, cats, foxes, all the animals you could think of, millions of images labelled. We put those images into our neural networks and the system attempts to understand what it's seeing. And we train it. We'll say seeing a dog and it makes uh, a judgement, outputs whether or not 
Uh, it's seeing a dog, maybe it gets it right, maybe it doesn't. Early days of training, these networks are very poor, but after endless presentations of samples or training examples to these networks and feedback into the network, so is the object you're seeing correctly identified or not? If it isn't, try and adjust the weights between the neurons to get a better output. And over many thousands, hundreds of thousands, of presentations of these images, the weights change and gradually the system learns to recognize the objects it's seeing. The same principles that occur in object recognition apply across everything from recognizing faces to understanding natural language. This is a powerful method, it's exciting, it's deep in the core of modern artificial intelligence and we expect to see many new systems emerging based on the principles of actual neural networks. Throughout all the sessions at Hay about artificial intelligence over the last few years, and boy do the expectations and, and hopes for the future change even since 2015, there's a constant anxiety about how science is actually matching up to dystopian fictions. Here's Beth Singler, a researcher at the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion at Cambridge, talking about worst-case scenarios. How do we define how technology will affect us in the future? And one of the ideas I'm particularly interested in, that you may not be familiar with uh, as yet, is something called the technological singularity. This is based on an exponential graph drawn by uh, someone called Moore. It's called, uh, colloquially, Moore's Law. The idea that successive technology um, updates and rapidly increases processing power over an exponential period of time. And people have extended that graph onwards, and this example is slightly out of date, but onwards to the point at which that processing power equates to the brain power of a mouse in 2015. That's why I'm saying it's slightly out of date. And then the brain power of the human being in 2023, and then beyond to a point we don't really understand what that intelligence will be like. And this is the technological singularity, just as the cosmological singularity, the point at which the universe came into being, we don't really understand quite what happened there and what happened before it, what existed, was there nothing, was there something. We don't entirely understand what a superintelligence would be like and how we would interact with it. Would it involve us? Some theorists think the only way to get to this technological singularity is for minds to be uploaded and we all become one shared consciousness. That's one interpretation. Others think, you know, sort of the Terminator Skynet version, where you turn on an AI and it self-replicates its intelligence so fast it becomes a superintelligence and then wipes us all out because we're very annoying. Uh, I don't have an answer to what will happen at that point. I hope it's not the Skynet version. Well, now for a practical and optimistic idea from James Scott, the Professor of Statistics from Texas and author of AIQ, How Artificial Intelligence Works and How We Can Harness Its Power for a Better World. He's looking at the medical applications of artificial intelligence. Rewind, say, 10 or 15 years, the kinds of image detection or image labeling algorithms that were state-of-the-art Maybe, if you were lucky, they could tell you the difference between a cat and a dog. Uh, the kind of image detection algorithms that are state-of-the-art today, they could look at two different breeds of dogs and tell you the difference between a Siberian Husky and an Alaskan Malamute. They have gotten radically better. And now when you think about those kind of technologies doing something a little bit more socially useful than labeling pictures of dog breeds on the internet, 
I think of them doing something like analyzing an MRI image uh, of somebody's busted knee or somebody with a neurological trauma. Uh, I think of using those kinds of technologies uh, in computational pathology to help oncologists diagnose cancer more rapidly and more effectively so that they can treat their patients more quickly. That's one big area where I think AI is set to really offer a productivity boost to doctors and help them deliver the best care for their patients. Let's hear from Beth Singler again about the ethical question of what rights intelligent machines might have. What mm. sort of rights could you feasibly give to a robot that could feel pain? Yeah, I think I think the wonderful thing about science fiction, it's sort of already gone there before we're starting right. to have these public debates. Right. So if people are familiar with the series Humans, right. that there are a, a, a small, I don't want to do spoilers, but there's <laughs> a small group within the larger community of synths, of androids yeah. that are employed by humans that have what seems to be genuine consciousness. And one of the synths murders someone. Yeah. Again, I'm trying to avoid spoilers. But it was an old series. And she insists on being put on trial because she wants to prove her personhood. But they, they, you know, they, it doesn't work out the way that she wants it to. But we, we may have to think about our legal system in this, ter in, this, in this way, that there will be entities that may claim free agency in the future. Yeah. It still feels quite sci-fi, but the, the tend of the technology is in this direction with greater and greater autonomy for AI systems. And then there's a bigger question of, what is the impact of AI systems that don't have autonomy on our lives? Would we have recourse if an algorithm decides that we shouldn't have a job? The celebrated novelist Ian McEwan came to Hay in 2019 to talk about Machines Like Me, a story set in a counterfactual 1980s where Alan Turing is still alive, having opted not for chemical castration but for a prison sentence which gave him time to develop his ideas. It's amazing how often all the speakers at Hay over the last decade have cited Turing as the founder of so many of these theories. And it's often been said that it took technology 50 years to generate the computational processing power that was necessary to meet Alan Turing's imagination. Here's McEwen developing some of those ethical and moral ideas about humanoid intelligence that Beth Singler was just talking about in an extract taken from his interview with Marcus de Sotoy. The interest, I think, for literature is it, it's just, I mean, it has been for years now, as I said, uh, for literature and, and drama of all kinds, um, it's irresistible, partly because it throws us back onto what we are. Nearly all tales of artificial intelligence finally come back, or should come back, I think, to what's our difference, are we converging, is there something that we have that they will never have? I mean, uh, I've been at uh, gatherings like this and someone usually stands up and says, especially in the United States, uh, what about the soul? Um, now, if you took that in the broadest sense, uh, um, not the soul as described in, in, in uh, the major religions like Christianity and Islam and so on, but that sort of irreducible core that we feel is our humanity, well, then we're thrown back onto deciding what that core is. Uh, and that's really what I think 
I'd like to think anyway that my novel is about. Well, it's the challenge story. certainly of whether this thing is conscious or not and when you can make that decision. And yeah. Turing, of course, said intelligence should only be, it should be judged if, if it passes itself off as human, then we should regard it as having the same intelligence as human. But is that, good enough, is that a good enough test? And we, yeah, we could go on another 5,000 years building more and more beautiful and sophisticated robots. And we ask them if they're conscious and they say, of course I am. Yes. Will we believe them? Um, so when Adam tells um, Charlie, the narrator, that Adam is in love with Charlie's girlfriend, uh, Charlie's first reaction is, come on, you're off your territory. This is nonsense. How could, how could you be in love? And Adam says, quite reasonably, how dare you insult me? Uh, what do you think at the moment is when Charlie kind of actually recognizes, I think this thing probably is conscious? It's a slow process towards the moment when he'll end up with Alan Turing, who gives him a very firm ticking off. Um, delivers, in fact, what I would regard as a materialist curse. Um, because I might as well say this, uh, Charlie has taken a hammer to Adam's head and Turing has said, well, what you've denied the world, taken from the world, is a consciousness. Uh, and um, I mean, Turing says that this should actually, you know, deserves crime. to be, com yes, it's a, is a crime. It doesn't matter if it's bits and pieces of silicon, it's a consciousness. And uh, I take this as a sort of a basic matter of moral law that you can't own another's consciousness. So that, that would be my sort of categorical imperative. Even though you've paid 86,000 pounds for it, when you get it home and you decide and you're convinced that it is conscious, you cease to own it. You cannot own another person. Alongside Alan Turing's creativity, the other iconic moment in public awareness of artificial intelligence comes when the computer Deep Blue defeats the absolutely invincible human world chess champion Garry Kasparov. Now, we'll hear from him towards the end of this podcast. But before that, let me introduce you again to Marcus de Sotoy, Professor of Mathematics, tireless champion for the public understanding of science, and author of The Creativity Code. Here he is talking about the next gameplay sensation that shifted the idea of what a computer could do in terms of sport from machine learning to something that comes very close to actual intelligence. This is the ancient game of Go, a Chinese game played on a 19 by, by 19 grid. Uh, the, you put black and white stones down, and what you try and do is to surround your opponent's stones before they surround yours. And the complexity of this game is, is far greater than that of chess. Um, you really do need a sense of pattern recognition to kind of have a feeling for the stones that you're going to put down. So you ask a Go player, why are you making that move? They'll just say, it feels right. Um, it's a game which increases in complexity as the game goes on, rather than chess, which actually gets simpler because pieces get taken off the board. And if you ever went to a, um, a computer science lecture, they would always say that Go is the game that it's almost impossible um, to try and code a computer to play at any particular level. People had tried, but we just didn't really understand how humans were playing the game. So it was very hard to put, write down code to, uh, to capture what we were doing. 
game. There was a race, lot of subconscious kind of feeling for, for the game. Um, and any attempt to try and encode playing Go at any level um, couldn't even match an amateur playing the game. So I always used Go as my protective shield. Well, if a computer can't play Go, it's certainly not going to be able to play the game of mathematics. So. I went through a little bit of an existential crisis a couple of years ago um, when DeepMind in uh, London uh, developed a, a new bit of code uh, using a kind of new style of coding which they believed could challenge the world's best um, at, at this game. Um, and uh, the best uh, a couple of years ago was Lisa Dole, Korean player. Lisa Dole was totally dismissive of this new algorithm that DeepMind had proposed, said he was going to demolish this algorithm a 5 nil. Um, but they met, they played five games, and um, he was completely shocked as the games went on. He lost 4-1. And that one game that he did win, um, Lisa Dole now regards as possibly the, the most valuable game of his whole career that he won, that he was able to beat this AI. So what has happened in the last couple of years that we're able to actually program a computer to play this very intuitive, creative game? Well, there's a kind of... Oops, let's um, take that back. Uh, there's, a, there's a new kid on the block, which is called machine learning. And machine learning is actually the process of which a, a child learns by, by failing and learning to do something new. So machine learning, I suppose coding in the past, you see, we did have to write code um, that we knew what the computer was going to do. But the, there's been a change in codes. This is a very top-down sort of coding, where the human has to know what to do, and the computer just implements that maybe very quickly or very deeply, like in the game of chess. But in the game of Go, the way they trained it was, first of all, to expose it to all the human games that were online. We have a lot of data of games that have been played, and it learned um, and, and changed, mutated, and the code developed as it encountered each of these games, um, understanding what particular moves gave uh, a player an advantage, which moves lost the game. But then it went on to another stage, and it started to produce synthetic data. Um, it started playing itself, versions of itself. And when a version of itself won and it understood the move was a, a positive mood, it would kind of um, reparameterize the emphasis to, to play that move again because it seems to be a winning move. And the losing moves would be kind of downgraded in the code. So what's interesting is that although DeepMind wrote the code originally, because the code was written in a way that it could learn and develop and change and mutate, by the end, the code was doing things that the original coders at DeepMind didn't really understand why it was making those decisions. So I guess, you know, maybe not a surprise that at some point um, a computer would be able to play this game at a high level. Um, I watch these games obsessively, actually, on YouTube. They were broadcast live, because I realized that my kind of uh, life was potentially under threat as a mathematician. If it could play this game, why couldn't it be creative in my world of mathematics? Um, so I watched the first game. The first game, actually, AlphaGo played a very conventional a human game, and at least at all tried to disrupt that by playing um, a game that was very against his style of play, trying to disrupt uh, the, the AlphaGo's uh, expectations of how humans play. And in a way, he probably lost that game because he wasn't playing his own game. So the second game, he decided, no, I'm going to play how I usually play. Um, but in the second game, something rather extraordinary happened. And I realized at this point that this was a, a kind of 
um, a, a phase change in artificial intelligence. Um, because on the, thir the 36th move, Lisa Doll put down a white stone um, on the board and then decided he needed to get, have a little bit of a break. He went up onto the top of the hotel in Seoul, um, smoked a cigarette. AI doesn't need to smoke cigarettes for stimulation. Um, so it sat there and thought for a while um, and then asked the human who was playing the uh, stones. Um, this wasn't an exercise in robotics, um, actually very difficult to program a computer, a machine to pick things up and place them on a board precisely. But it suggested playing a stone, which I've marked with a little white circle, on the fifth row in from the edge. Now, when AlphaGo played this move, all the commentators on YouTube gasped. They went, oh! Wow, it's made a mistake. Because early on in the game, your Go teacher te teaches you that you should play just on the first, second, third, and fourth row in. There's a kind of early competition for the edge of the board and the, ex the, the very edges of, of the internal board. And if you play a, a stone on the fifth row or further deeper into the board, um, it's considered a very weak move because you're not really controlling very much territory. So when AlphaGo said, play this stone on the fifth row in, all of the commentators said, it's made a mistake. And, um, well, Lisa Dole should be able to win this game. Uh, Lisa Dole came down from the top of the hotel, and uh, he, you, it's wonderful, watch this, you can watch the repeats of this. The, his reaction, wow, why is it? And he was a little bit more suspicious about why it had played this move. It was so unusual. So there was a, there was a huge amount of surprise about this move. However, as the game went on and more and more stones were played onto the board and territory built up from the bottom right-hand corner, very towards the end of the game, that move that AlphaGo had made in move 37 turned out to be crucial to AlphaGo controlling the whole of this territory. It turned out to be an incredibly insightful move. And for me, this move was doing something very new. And I believe this move is something that we should call a creative act by the artificial intelligence. And uh, why I believe this, I spent um, a couple of years on a committee at the Royal Society where we've been looking at uh, the impact that machine learning is going to have on society over the next 10 years. Uh, Demis Hassabis, who um, is one of the, the, the minds behind DeepMind, um, was on the committee, but also um, a philosopher, uh, Margaret Bowden. And she's been thinking... Uh, deeply for many years about the, what these, what she calls tin cans, these computers might be able to do. And she has a nice working definition of what she thinks creativity should be. I talk about a few different ideas of creativity in the book, but I thought this was quite a useful definition, working definition, to sort of test AI uh, against whether it is being creative. And one can argue about whether this really captures creativity, but for uh, Margaret Bowden, she suggests that um, it should have three qualities. It should be new. Well, computers can easily make new things, um, that, and that's, we can very objectively judge that. But it also should be surprising. Um, now, certainly in the game of Go, that move 37 surprised all the commentators. And the third thing it should have is value. In Go, we can very easily judge value because does something win the game or not? Um, but these two things, surprise and value, are not so objective, much more subjective in nature. Surprise for one person will not be surprised for another. So if AI is going to pass these tests, it's got to learn about what humans, what we as humans value and what we find um, rather boring or perhaps surprisingly interesting. So that's why the idea of machine learning uh, might be interesting because it can learn on what we value and find surprising.
It's well worth picking up on the rest of Marcus de Sotoy's extraordinary 2019 lecture on the Creativity Code, which you can find in its entirety on the Hay Player, where he extrapolates on the ideas of creating music and abstract art through artificial intelligence. And he celebrates the great underappreciated genius of uh, artificial intelligence, Ada Lovelace. Now, Hay Festival podcast listeners may well question whether or not this concentration on the games of chess and Go is the wisest and most reasonable celebration of human intelligence, more remarkable, say, than the creation of Hamlet. But let me return for a moment to Margaret Bowden. Here she is in conversation with Adam Rutherford, exploring some of the natures of psychology and philosophy behind the artifice of intelligence. Some philosophers do think that consciousness and the, the mind is... We, we have such a, a, a lack of understanding of neuroscience that there is something fundamental that isn't currently covered by our understanding of evolution and, and neuroscience and biology in, in general. And that's not to imply that there is anything supernatural about, about our minds. But what, what is your take on that idea that some philosophers have, which is that we simply are missing something fundamental about the nature of mind that we, we just don't even know what it is yet? Well, I would say there's no such thing as the problem of consciousness. There is no such thing. There are lots and lots of problems of consciousness. Because if you think about examples where we use words like conscious and unconscious and consciously and so on and so forth, a whole lot of different distinctions here. For example, the difference between doing something where you're thinking about every step quite deliberately, right? And doing something by rote, for instance. Or the difference between being open to stimuli coming in, receptive to and responsive to uh, those stimuli, and not being receptive stimuli coming in. And, and many, many other um, distinctions of behavior and thinking, which we put in terms of consciousness and unconsciousness or different degrees of consciousness. Now, I would call those examples of functional consciousness. These are psychological functions um, which appear to be linked to um, what we call consciousness. And in fact, I would say that there has already been considerable, significant advance in understanding how those sorts of things are possible and what causes them to happen, partly by the use of, of AI ideas. And there are a very small number, I think the best one is a thing called LIDA, L-I-D-A, um, a, a model of consciousness, a computer model of consciousness, which is based actually on a neuropsychological theory. I mean, it's coming out of the life sciences, psychology and neuroscience. Uh, which includes, you know, many of those sorts of distinctions. So those sorts of questions about consciousness, I think certainly can in principle be understood in this way. To some extent, they already have been understood that way. But what's called phenomenal consciousness is another matter. By phenomenal consciousness, philosophers mean, uh, you know, the feeling of pain, the feeling of warmth, the redness of a red patch. That, you know, sensations, feelings in general. 
Now, phenomenal consciousness, I would say, from the philosophical point of view, is, a, is an absolute morass. Very, very few philosophers have got the arrogance or self-confidence to say that they understand what it is. Those who do aren't believed by virtually anybody else. There is a whole group, a whole huge group of philosophers who say it's ridiculous uh, to ask the question in the first place. You know, there could never be a scientific... Forget computers, just think about neuroscience. These people would say there could never be a neuroscientific explanation of consciousness. And the reason, in a nutshell, I'm on a pea nutshell, a very small nutshell, um, that they would say is all of our concepts, including, of course, our scientific concepts, all of our concepts um, are grounded in human consciousness. And therefore... It's absurd, absurd, nonsensical to think that scientific concepts, scientific theories, could explain consciousness. In other words, <clears throat> a scientific psychology, what they would call a naturalistic psychology, is impossible. Now, there's, there's a whole host of philosophers who believe that, there's a whole host of philosophers who believe that it is possible, but even the ones who believe it is possible in principle, as I said, can't give you an account of what it might be in the case of phenomenal consciousness, which everybody's happy with. There is no knockdown argument that can decide between these two positions, largely because that the most fundamental concepts, reason, truth, logic, and so forth, that you would need uh, to mount such a knockdown argument, are understood in fundamentally different ways by the two sides. It is a real philosophical mess. And given that that is the situation, uh, you know, there is not going to be a scientific understanding of phenomenal consciousness uh, until we've got that mess sorted out. Now, it is my opinion, because I'm on this side of the of the philosophical fence I described, not that side, it is my opinion that if and when we get such an understanding, it will be because the neuroscience and the AI, help, you know, the computational neuroscience, um, have helped us towards it. So I think that science and philosophy <coughs> run in tandem here, but we certainly aren't anywhere near it yet. And um, it just is, a, at the moment, a huge mystery. Let's give the last word this week to Gary Kasparov, the great world chess champion who battled against the machines. Here he is talking to Stephen Fry about the essential question that we are addressing here about the degree to which this is a tool. It's a technology that we collaborate with, we use. This is a long way from dystopian nightmare. He is, well, I'll let him say it. How can we combine these forces? How can we use uh, these or, or transform the Turing's dream about chess being sort of ultimate test yeah. for machines intelligence into um, turning chess um, in the form of a, of a field to uh, test human, uh, the combination of human and uh, machines abilities? How, yeah. how about combining these uh, this complementary uh, uh, qualities? Uh, machines, brute force of calculations, machines memory, and etc., and humans understanding, uh, humans intuition. Yeah, because chess is not 
I mean, despite you know the fact that the yes machines can now beat us, um, chess has has a very special standing as a human occupation. It's almost unique. Only music and mathematics seem to be able to provide prodigies. That's to say, it's a closed system that only means. But in chess, you have a result. This is and there's a result, yeah, which exactly. is different that's, to music. Yeah. And, but nonetheless, you can have a 10 year old who can pl play an extraordinary way, or a 15 year old like Bobby Fischer. Um, whereas you can't have that in poetry, you can't have that in uh, you know, many other things. You can have it in mathematics, and you can have it in music, as we know from Mozart. Yes. So it is a, it's a fascinating field of study still. But, the but, human but, it's level. Also, but it's also about it's it's also about decision making process. Yeah. Because we we're now looking into the ways humans and machines cooperating, uh, mm -hmm. cooperating. And um, in chess, we know that a decent human player yeah. with an ordinary computer will beat supercomputer. Period. Right. It, quite easily because it's it, it it's machine helps to undermine our weaknesses. And, 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 and the understanding, the human understanding, uh, multiplied by machines, it's brute force of calculation, relatively small, still enough to, right. to annihilate the, the, the massive power of, of supercomputer. But the most interesting thing is that if you have even weak players, plus machine, plus a better process, that will be superior to uh, a strong human player, plus machine, plus uh, an inferior uh, um, uh, process. process. So yeah. at the end of the day, it's all about um, interface. Yeah. It's all about us finding the way to utilize this immense power of calculation and now some understanding and, and creating something new. So the, they call it BCI, the, the brain-computer interface, you yeah. think is part of the, the future of AI, is it? I think so. Uh, the answer is I don't know what is the future, but I know that the future is, is self-fulfilling prophecy. And okay. if we if we if we keep if we keep being scared uh, uh, um, about the future, yeah. so it's uh, if we think that AI future is, uh, is is as bleak as as is uh, depicted in the Terminator and the Matrix, yeah, it, it might happen. Yeah. Uh, but I'm you know, I'm not optimist because. Uh, I don't know, it's not, it's not a reason to be afraid of. Yeah. By the way, I don't know was always the motivation for humans to go just to, to go anywhere, to cross the Atlantic. Yeah. Uh, it's 500 years ago. Well, yeah. it was far more you know, dangerous and risky than today to fly to the moon or the Mars. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, um, um, and I think that it's, it's, there's so many opportunities just as being, you know, being presented to us. Because we should simply look at the, at the process of machines gradually taking over some menial parts of cognition yeah. as, as, the, as the history of, of human progress. Machines replace farm animals, manual labor. Machines helping us to improve our living standards. It's history of civilization. Thank you for listening to this week's Hay Festival podcast brought to you by our lovely friends at Bailey Gifford Investment Managers. If you're listening on Apple or Spotify, please rate this as highly as you can. And... Have a look further on the Hay Player for another 8,000 or so films and audio recordings from all our festivals around the world over the last 30 years. Join us next week for The War Poets. Thank you for listening.